All right, if you've got your Bible, why don't you grab it, and in the time that we have remaining, I'd like to see what we can do with a particular encouragement. We've been studying the first chapter of Ephesians, really from a very superficial, broad perspective. It's a, um, it's a passage that you could easily preach upon for some time. In fact, I got a, uh, a sermon essay written by one of the resident scholars in our church, nearly 10,000 odd words examining this particular passage and the nuances and wonderful, wonderful piece of scripture. But we've really been trying to take a few snapshots and it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? I, I was talking this morning to Mel, who's back from her big overseas trip and I don't know whether she's here, she might be out with the bookstore still and she was saying, I was, I was listening, I was traveling, listening to your sermon a couple of weeks ago about the Swiss Alps and I was just there, I was there and I know exactly what you mean. Just leaves you spoilt for anything else. And then Josh as well has just returned from, from holidays, climbed up Kilimanjaro as you do. He said the view was spectacular and amazing. The hardest thing about a holiday like that is actually returning to normal life, isn't it? How do you adjust? Whereas for us as believers... We get both the majesty of viewing the glory of the gospel, the power of the cross, but it gives us a richness. It infuses every breath with meaning and purpose, the matchless message of the gospel. And indeed, that's why Paul, I believe, writes this letter. He says in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1 that he, he prays and he writes so that the Ephesians' hearts would be enlightened, illuminated completely, crystal clear, seeing in all its brilliance the gospel. And so the very brief snapshots we've taken, we looked at verse 4 and 5, this is by way of review, talking about this thing of meaning, the Christian perspective on meaning. Why are we here? Does our life have value and significance and worth? We talked last week from verse 7 and 8 about in the gospel there is real freedom. Here's a buzzword, a key word that we, we like to use in society a lot, freedom. But what is freedom? And hopefully we discovered and were encouraged that true freedom is only found in one place. And that's in a relationship with our Creator and all that offers to us. And then verse 11 and 12, and the message is this, in the gospel there is real purpose. Let's read it together. Verse 11, in him, the third in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why has he done it? In verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And just because it's good, let's finish off this particular passage, verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Why? To the praise of his glory. And everybody said, Amen. 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 That's where we're headed. So we've gone from the beginning, the meaning, the purpose of all existence, from eternity past to eternity future, We've looked at the means, this picture of freedom and what Christ came to do. And now really we're saying, well, what, what do we do? How do we live our lives in response? What does this passage show us about 
our purpose. See, I'm hoping that we discover that life is this glorious adventure. Wonderfully exciting. Every breath has significance. It has meaning. It has purpose. And all the way through this series, we've been contrasting. It's not something that I normally do, but looking at how this particular view of the glorious gospel compares with a a prevailing secular view. As I said, not something I would normally do, but sometimes I'm hoping it's helpful for a few reasons. Number one, that contrast often highlights for us the beauty of the gospel, makes us appreciate. You know, you appreciate the Swiss Alps, you appreciate the view from Kilimanjaro, I can't speak from experience, because we just don't have anything like it, do we? There's no comparison, there's no framework, whereas the contrast is what helps us appreciate sometimes the reality of that which we're witnessing. But I'm also hoping that as we've gone through these past few weeks, that there's a sense in which this helps us engage. It engage with what people in our families, people all around us, what they believe. You know, this is an era, and we've talked about this a lot this particular year, that there's a battle for truth. And I believe with every fiber of my being that the gospel, that the message of Christ is the only message that holds weight. It's the only truth. But for so many of us, I think we haven't really searched through the significance and the weight of it, and certainly not in a way that we could express and encourage others with. And it is a message that's not just for us personally to receive, but a message to proclaim. A message to to share. I mean, who wouldn't want, as Ruth has just shared, seeing someone taking perhaps their final breaths in this life? Maybe they've lived a life completely apart from God. But in that moment, all of a sudden there's peace and there's joy. And they take that step into eternity. Shouldn't there be a, a driving passion for us? to share and engage with the people around us, to give them the hope that hopefully is burning brightly in our heart. So let's have a think about purpose. Why are we here? What is our purpose? And let me just give you a contrast here. Let me give you a few quotes. I found these. You can jot this down if you're interested. Newatheist.com. It's a very popular website. People write about all different things. But here's a few quotes just from average, everyday people that sort of sum up a secular, atheist, humanistic point of view of purpose. A lady named Susan, who's a psychologist, she said, if I get a what's-it-all-for sort of feeling, I say to myself, what's the point of it all? There isn't any point. And somehow, for me, I know it's not true for other people, that is really comforting. It slows me down, it reminds me that I didn't ask to be born here, I'll be gone, I won't know what'll happen, I'll just be gone, so I get on with it. I find it comforting to say to myself, there's no point, I live in a pointless universe. Here I am, for better or worse, just get on with it. So that's one perspective. And and I'm not saying these to belittle or to make fun of these. I'm saying to present this. This is the reality of an atheist, humanist, secular point of view, that ultimately there's this undeniable reality that there's no point. Here's another one. Robin, a journalist, she says... I try not to ache my brain too much about how vast the universe is and what life's all about. I think it's okay not to spend time wondering what the point of human existence is. 
All I know is that we're here and we might as well not have a horrible time if we can help it. I do feel that life is ultimately pointless, but honestly, I don't care. I'm just squeezing as much happiness out of it as I can for me and the people around me. You can see a common theme. One more, just one more. Physics teacher, the author of the Young Atheist Handbook, this was her perspective. She said, yes, of course, I know that life is ultimately without meaning or purpose, but the trick is not to wake up every morning and feel that way. Just embrace it. Create a sense of meaning and purpose by doing something useful with your life. I teach. I'm creative. I don't mean in a, a poncy hipster way, whatever that looks like. I mean make a curry, build some bookshelves, write a poem. And if you're really stuck, eat rice and dal. Physically filling yourself with the food you love does fill the emptiness you may feel inside. <laughs> now, I happen to really like rice and dal. In fact, a good Indian curry satisfies in the way that no other cuisine can. But I would suggest that it's not lasting meaning, lasting meaning and purpose, is it? It's not a life drenched with a purpose, with a passion that infuses everything we do. And as we've talked all along, it's in fact a worldly perspective that narrows us down. I find meaning and purpose by just not thinking too much, by just kind of you know, just, just sort of living within my little boundaries of what I can do to find some happiness. Whereas for the Christians, it's this vast open mountainside. We gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and then we come down with a passion to live for a purpose. And so here's some realities of that. I want to give us potentially three. We'll see how we go. But point number one at least is this. If we want to encounter, if we want to experience, if we want to live with a passion for the purpose for which we're created, <clears throat> it begins and it ends with him. doesn't begin just with a curry, a good curry. doesn't begin and end just with what I can do. It, in fact, doesn't begin and end with me at all. Have a look at this. If we, and you've probably noticed this if we've gone through this passage. If you look back, chapter 1, let me pull out some passages and see if there's a common theme. First of all, in verse 5, he says this, According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse number 9, According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And then as we read this morning in verse 11, According to the purpose of who? It's not a trick question. Him. Excuse me. According to the purpose of him. So whose purpose is at work? <clears throat> is it my purpose? No, it's his purpose. You see, Paul is trying to remind us here that this whole story from history past, from before the foundation of the world, it was about him. The whole picture of the gospel and the cross and him coming to save us. It was a story about him, his love, his grace, his mercy that reaches out. And then his plan of redemption to reconcile everything, to give us a future inheritance so that in the ages to come we proclaim the excellencies is a story all about him. We see this picture. Everything that has happened, everything that will ever happen is framed in reference to this one reality, his purpose 
and His will. His love, His grace, His saving power and presence. It's all about Him. It's all because of Him. It's all for Him. He purposed it. He accomplished it. He will complete it. Have we got the picture? Have we got the message? Everything is about Him. Which means that everything we are is lived and responds to the light of the glorious grace and the God that we worship and, and serve. Let me give you this clumsy and silly example, but it might hope help to illustrate a point. You see, everything that we have, therefore, is a gift given from Him for a purpose of His pleasure. We had a holiday recently, had a great time. We took our family, our four kids, up to the Gold Coast, and we've managed thus far to somehow distract the kids, I'm not quite sure how we've done this, from the knowledge of all of the theme parks on the Gold Coast. I go on a holiday to do absolutely nothing. Is anyone else like that? I know some of you are adventurous and you like to do and pack in a thousand things, but I do as, as little as possible. Not to mention that you go to those theme parks and you hand over your wallet and then you gasp as you get the credit bill at the end of the day. They're expensive. But this year we told the kids we'd love to take you to one, just one. And we all decided it was going to be SeaWorld. And so we thought we'd bring our kids in on this journey and give them this picture of we're going to go as a family. It's going to be amazing. So we sold it to them. But we said to our eldest two, we want you to join us on the journey. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you a little bit of extra pocket money each week and get you to save up to pay the entrance ticket, which is $100. So it's a lot of money for a little kid over the course of the next six to nine months before we head away. And then if you can save up, we will all head together off to this glorious adventure of going to SeaWorld. So they were pumped. They were excited. And my two eldest girls are very different. So one of my girls grabbed a hold of this. She thought this is fantastic. And so she was saving everything she could. And not only was she saving, but she just got this passion to earn extra money. So she was doing extra jobs. She had multiple income streams. She was selling recycling bottles. I mean, there was money coming in from everywhere. In fact, she had so much money, I needed some cash one time. I was heading out the door. True story. I said, sweetheart, can I borrow $20? And she said, well, it depends. I said, depends on what? She said, well, how much are you going to pay me back? I said, well, it's $20. And this is a true story. She said to me, yeah, but Dad, have you heard about interest? That's true. Before the Lord, that is a true story. I said, how old are you? That's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Anyway, so she'd saved up enough to pay for the whole family and was well and truly ready to go and pump for SeaWorld. The problem was my other girl, she got exactly the same pocket money and yet there was always some sort of temptation. She'd be there at the weekly dance classes or the nearly daily and they've got a little canteen, there's nice little snakes, nice little chocolates and she'd think, oh, I can just buy a little snake. I can just take a little chocolate here. And she'd be walking through the shops and she'd see something. And lo and behold, and we said to them, look, it's your money. You know, you do what you want as long as you've saved enough money to be ready to go for SeaWorld when we go on holiday. So it was about a week before we got out the money. We counted it all out. One girl had plenty and the other girl 
only had, I think it was about $10, 10 or $12. So she had a tiny fraction. And it was in that moment, all of a sudden she realized, she thought, well, that's it. I'm not going to go to SeaWorld. And so there was weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth <laughs> of biblical proportions. And in fact, it presented a whole other problem then because we thought we've promised all the kids SeaWorld, we can't leave her behind. Anyway, that's beside the point. Hopefully, in the midst of all that, there was a life lesson. And here's the point for us. You see, we have been given a gift. Every breath is a gift. But it's a gift that's been given for a purpose. And there's only two options. Either we spend our lives for ourselves, dal and rice and whatever else, or we've been invited in to spend our lives for the glorious gospel to see people rescued from death to life, to see the name of Jesus proclaimed. You know, it's, it's funny because so often one of the, the, the big arguments against this God who demands our worship is that he must be this you know, egotistical God. Who is he that he demands that we worship him and serve him and follow him? And I think that's such a fascinating paradox, but I'll make this point, this reality, that God invites us to that which he's created us for and that which gives us the most meaning. You know, you go, for example, to a, a big stadium. It's packed out. Watching a football game, watching a famous, your favorite band perform. And what happens? It's loud. It's exuberant. There's celebration. Why? Because there's something about the celebration that engages us with what's going on. And on a far grander scale, this is the message of the gospel. God is out there accomplishing his purpose. But he's not just doing it sovereignly. He's invited us. He's accomplishing it through us. And we get to stand in the stadium. We get to participate. We get to spend our lives declaring who he is, proclaiming the gospel, going out to see his will accomplished in our city, our hospitals, in our schools. What a glorious gift it is. Or we get to take our pocket money, so to speak, and spend it on snakes and chocolate. But what a day there will be, I believe, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, recognizing how we've spent our lives only for us. You see, Jesus came not so we could just live more effectively for ourselves. He came for, in fact, the exact opposite. He came to invite us in to his story. Jesus didn't come that we might live effectively with us as the center of our existence. He came to reveal what the center of our existence actually is. And you know, personally, I've, I have found this, and there's two other points, but I don't think we'll get there today. We'll just stick with one main thing. Otherwise, we'll have you all here until next Sunday. But I have found this such a needed but such an encouraging reality to recognize that actually I'm not the center of my own existence. That actually it's not really about me at all. It's incredibly freeing. Like just this week, I was praying, as I said, I was seeking the Lord. And it's so easy in those places to, to recognize my limitations. 
to recognize, God, I, I, I need you here, and I, I need this, and I need you to come into my story, and I need you to help me out here. And, and, and the Lord just gives you that little reminder, that little nudge from time to time, and he says, actually, Andrew, did you realize that this isn't your story at all? This is actually, this is my party. This is all about me. And this is me inviting you to participate. To participate in all that I am doing. Why don't I give you the other points, but I'll give them really quick. Can we do that? Are we still awake and alive? So the second point is simply this. The first point of discovering our purpose is that it's beginning and ending with him. Number two is that our purpose is actually everything, not just something. If we had the time, I'd develop that. But so often we have this narrow definition of purpose. Purpose is it's when I'm at church on a Sunday. Purpose is when I do that thing that the Lord's put on my heart to do, when I travel the world for him, when I'm an itinerant ministry, when I fill in the blank. Well, what's all the rest of my life? It's just wasted space and wasted time. Whereas Paul will talk in Ephesians 2.9 about being created for good works. It's this life of everything that we do, being a part of the purpose for which we are created. And the third point is simply this. So how, how do we really live out purpose? If purpose is everything, if purpose is all about him, it's all about him, it's about everything we do. Point number three, and this is crucial, for us to live in our purpose is to recognize that purpose is worship. Purpose is worship, that all of our lives and everything that we can do is actually an act of worship to God. And here's the story that always reminds me of this. I remember a few years ago, we were moving house, and I'll finish with this, don't worry. And as we were cleaning out, we had this, um, I had to build extra storage in our house just to fit in all our stuff. Anyone had that problem? You have kids, as we had four kids in this one house, and the amount of stuff, I lost track of all the stuff that I had. And I just found more places to stick stuff. But we were sorting through all of our stuff in preparation to move into the house that we're now in. And up in the back corner, tucked away behind all this other stuff that I'd forgotten about, was this one little bag, and it was a bag, or a few bags actually, of all of these trophies. Trophies that I'd won all the way throughout school and college from sporting endeavors. I was never particularly academically gifted, but I loved sport and I was good at it. And so I had trophies from all different events and medals and medallions, and I was excited. I'd forgotten that I'd even hang on to this. So I grabbed it down and I grabbed my kids and I said, guys, you're not going to believe what I found. This is just incredible. And they took one look and they said, it's a pile of leftover plastic toys. I said, no, no, these are trophies. These are, these are moments in time. These are battles fought. These are victories won. This is a legacy that I'm passing on to you as my children. Sit down and let me tell you some stories and tales. And their eyes glazed over very quickly. So we sorted through this box of trophies. And at the end of the day, after I'd relived a few of those very significant moments, we took that pile of trophies and we put it in the bin. And off it went to adorn the local piles of the garbage dump. 
And yet I see this other picture, and I've always loved this picture. Don't need to turn there. Revelation 4.10, we see this scene. There's 24 elders around the throne of God, and there's worship. And these elders have crowns. What do crowns represent? Their status and achievements, accomplishments, and rewards. And Scripture talks about five crowns that we as believers can obtain. You think, well, why would we obtain crowns? Are we all going to have a wardrobe and show off our crowns as we walk through the streets of heaven? Well, we get this great picture of the elders. They're there with their crowns. And as the worship begins, we all know what happens. They cast their crowns before the Lord. Every time they worship, they cast their crowns. Their achievements, their status, their accomplishments, their rewards. There they are as an act of worship. And it struck me as I was thinking of that particular illustration. The greatest trophy, the most profound achievement, if stored up for oneself, will eventually end up adorning the rubbish pile of history. But the crowns will give us an eternity of adoration and worship of the one who's worthy. See, either we live for trophies, for the trash, or we live for crowns. To crown him with many praise. To lay before him all that we've accomplished for the glory of his name as an act of worship. You see, our our work, our purpose, our mission, it finds its truest perspective in worship. And worship finds its fullest expression when it's not just sung on a Sunday. But when it spills forth from a Sunday into everything that we do. You know, I've, I found this so incredibly helpful for me. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. If I'm preaching a sermon on a Sunday, I'm like, Lord, this is just my act of worship. Here it is. Sometimes there's all sorts of stuff in the offering that I'm not so pleased with that. But here it is. It's just an offering of worship. When I'm frustrated and There's things that are bugging me and I'm like, well, Lord, here is my offering of worship. Here's the wonderful thing about the Christian perspective, particularly in those seasons that are hard, when you're weighed down, burdened, when there's just stuff coming against you. Lord, here is my offering of worship. It's all about you. And my purpose is to take everything that I have And just to lay before you as an offering of praise in response to who you are. When Christ is our meaning, our freedom, our purpose, everything changes. There's a life of eternal worth, significance and meaning. There's fruitful, joyful labor. We're not just here to fill our bellies. And find some way to amuse ourselves till we die. We're here to live a life of worship. A passion that infuses everything. Every aspect of our lives. Every area with great meaning and purpose. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you're the king who's ever worthy. We thank you for the privilege it is that you would invite us into your story. 
And Lord, I, I want to repent for myself, for the times and just for the ease at which I put myself so easily and comfortably in the picture. Lord, that I take the, the glory that you've called me to be a part of, your mission and purpose, and I think, well, just a little bit for me here and there. Won't really hurt, will it, Lord? I can just take a bit. I can just put myself in the frame. And Lord, I want my life. Every breath that I take, everything that I am, that I have, that I ever will be, to simply be an offering of worship for you. And so Lord, would you take us back to that place? Would you fill our hearts, enlighten our hearts with the matchless message of your gospel? And Lord, as we see you in all the beauty of who you are, the power of your love that rescues and redeems, and your purpose that you invite us into, would our lives again be filled with wide-eyed wonder, with a passion to run for you and to serve you, and to seek you. And a desire to just continually lay all that we are on the altar. Saying worthy, worthy, worthy are you. King of kings. Lord of lords.